episode of the Rental Journal Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the equipment rental industry. I'm your host, Mark Simonson, and today's guest is Charles Anderson. Charles is the co-founder of a company called Arrow, and this is actually his second appearance on the podcast. Charles, the, the people were interested. They loved what we did the first time, so we thought we would do round two. Gold star and gold medal. Gold star. And we thought that we would go straight in with a interesting question. Charles, if you could have dinner with three people, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, okay. I probably would go Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, and Jesus. Okay, there's a bit of a sporting category going on here as well. What's the and what's the why? I just the best in the world. Like really religious views aside for a moment about Jesus. If you study the spread of uh, Christianity and, the, and the, the Jesus teachings, the Jesus worldviews, like before there was social media, and there's lots of reasons why, and there's lots of uh, negativity around the Crusaders and things like things that, that happened. Uh, I'm not minimizing that at all, but just studying it purely from an academic point of view, the fact that a belief system spread around the world that fast without phones, without computers, without texting, it is remarkable. So one is like the theme is being the best in the world at something. And Muhammad Ali and Michael Jordan and Jesus all, all were the best in the world at, at something, whether mm. it was uh, spreading a message or it was uh, competing at a sport. And one is, uh, and I, I like the, the split between an individual sport and a team sport, because even though Michael Jordan was by far at the time, the greatest basketball player that was playing the sport, he couldn't win without his team. And I think that was really an interesting dynamic versus Muhammad Ali, who was able to just be the best of the best all by himself. And so I think getting those three people together and saying like, what enabled you to be the best of the best at the time when there were lots of other competing ideas and concepts that to me is like a, Mm. I'd I'd love to answer that question. Yeah. And I think it's just a huge mental state as well. Like the, the mental ability for even just if you take Michael Jordan and, and Muhammad Ali, like their, their ability to break down situations, analyze what needs to happen, convey messages. They're very good at conveying messages as well mm-hmm. and, and being able to deliver on what they say. Yes. I mean, there's a Tiger Woods is another one, but I think you're covered with Michael. Like there's no, there's only three seats at the table. If there were four, I think Tiger would be another one to, to add. Sorry, Tiger. We're full, mate. We, can, we can't have <laughs> any other people. <laughs> Next time, Tiger. But I was watching uh, a, I was watching a video of Tiger Woods talking about his approach to a 150 yard um, shot to to approach a, a green and um, and there were three I don't remember the other golfers but there were three golfers Tiger was one the, and the other two were like, world class golfers and and the question was how do you approach like what do you take into consideration when you take this shot and the first golfer went and he went down his list of things that you or I would probably think and the second person went and he had different but similar length of a list and tigers i'll never forget tiger's response his response was all of it and the interviewer said well what do you mean he goes i i take all of it into consideration and he starts going into a level of detail that the other two golfers didn't even contemplate where he starts talking about like the moisture in the air and the this and the that and things like i didn't even know those things could even been on the list so to your point like they just they take in so much more information and then they digest it and synthesize it into a golf swing or into a punch or into a basketball shot or into like a belief system that those are the concepts like, ah, oh, how did you see that? I didn't even, I didn't even mm. think of that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It would it'd be great just to, I feel like if I was in that situation, I'd be so nervous. I would ask like the stupidest questions. But... 
<laughs> What's the dumbest question you would ask, uh, Muhammad Ali? Uh, when did you start boxing? Boxers are briefs. Yeah. That's, that's like a- yeah. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, I'll just ask something really stupid. So, like, I would really want to mentally prepare because I feel like you ask the best questions to people that you're a bit more comfortable with. So, you yep. probably need to, and you don't want to go in there like a robot and just like rapid fire questions at, at these people because they're going to be like, they're pretty annoying. So true. Yeah. Yeah. You, it's probably a little bit of preparation cool. for this interview. Be cool, man. Calm down. Let him Calm ask down. me questions. We're reversing yes. situation. Yes. Oh, that's, oh, that's, so a, that's a good question. I'm going to think about that. Three people dead or alive. Oh man. There's so many. I probably, I mean, mother Teresa would be another one. If we can make it four, which I know you said, no, I probably would bump. I probably would bump Michael Jordan slide in mother Teresa. Sorry. Jordan. Jeez. Wow. Okay. Getting interesting. Now. But if he hears this, I, I retract that last statement. And I would definitely rather have Michael Jordan. He's going to say, you're no longer welcome at my restaurant in Chicago. <laughs> I think he's, I think he's okay. I'm actually wearing the Jordan red and black right no, now. You can't, my... you can't switch it up now. You can't just <laughs> change That's things. Oh. That's fair. All right. Are you spending your Fridays doing manual data entry? What could you replace that time with? Closing more deals? Spending time with family? What if you found a platform that could give you back your time? And you got to choose what you wanted to do with it. Arrow is the sales and growth platform built for you. A simple and powerful way to close big deals. Unlock your growth today and visit www.try.rentalarrow.com. Again, that's www.try.rentalarrow.com. Now back to the podcast episode. So let's get a little bit deeper then. What is your biggest failure? And what did you learn from it? Uh, I mean, like, even that question gives me a pit in my stomach. So many failures. Like, can you give me like a, can you narrow it in? Like, is it okay. personal? Maybe. Is it professional? Is it like? Yeah. So let, let's go maybe from a professional standpoint in your career. And maybe let, oh, let's okay. make it a bit easier yeah. as well. Maybe it doesn't have to be like the biggest failure. Maybe it's just something that you think that really changed me. Well, oh man, I think there, there are two things. There are two things. Watching the mortgage crisis from the front row seat of having my own mortgage company and watching people who I admired, who had made a lot of money be scared. And at the time, I, my, my overhead was $1,100 a month, I, uh, $1,700 a month, including my rent. All I had was my, my, my car payment. I, it, was, it was just me. I had to provide for it. Not married, no kids, nothing like that. Same girlfriend at the time. But like, it was so easy for me to get through the financial crisis of 2009, 10, 11, uh, the Great Recession, because I didn't have much at risk, but I did have a mortgage company. So I was on the front lines watching things just crash and seeing people scared like that shook me. Like, hold on, you have all, you have all the answers. So like that, I, I don't know if I would call, I call that a failure. But I think that there's a lot of parallels between that experience. And then I think for me, uh, getting fired, as grateful as I am to be on the other side of that whole experience and as excited as I am about Arrow, man, getting fired from something that you put your heart and soul into for almost a decade, even if it's the right decision, even if it's the like rainbows on the other side of the decision and, and you know silver linings and all of the, the platitudes that make you feel better, it still sucks. Mm. like it's still like people don't take your calls anymore like they don't answer your calls 
they call you back eventually, but they don't answer your calls when you're not relevant for them anymore. And so I think like learning how to think about professional relationships, maybe is a better way to phrase like my, my lesson learned from that is I, I naively or optimistically thought a lot of relationships were something that they actually were not. And it was gut wrenching for me to to see uh, it was a lot of money at risk. I'm not trying to minimize the consequences of, of what happened. It was, a, it was a big deal. But watching that there are clear lines between personal and professional that I didn't see before. It was probably a pretty big failure and lesson learned of mine that uh, there does need to be clarity, uh, clarity over um, purposes of relationships. And I wouldn't have thought that that was necessary 10 years ago, but I do think that that's important uh, today. Did that answer your question? It does. And it, I think it is hard to sometimes distinguish between a friend a personal friend and a colleague or a boss and whatnot. And I think a lot of people go through that and it, it can even be hard the other way around. If you become too friendly with like some of your workers, it can be a really awkward right. situation when you want to maybe let go of them or, or whatever the situation might be, or you might want to demote them or promote someone that isn't them. You know, like there's a lot of awkward, so it's probably a two-way situation as well, but I, I can see a lot of, I can imagine a lot of people go through that similar situation. Yeah. It's, it's, so hard because I, I think that there's extremes. There's the businesses that feel like families and the family offices and um, and building a company to hand it over to your children. And, and in those situations, you don't, you will not and don't fire your family. And there's businesses that are completely professional, but they, they say we're like family and that's part of their, their mantra. And then you have terminations at times and that feels like a, a betrayal. And then there's, there's the Netflix of the world where they kind of almost celebrate uh, terminations and and they there's some cool podcasts about like how people that have gotten fired are okay with being fired and I just I don't know there's so many ranges of answers to that question yeah but I think the other side of it is sometimes for some people getting fired could be like the best thing ever that's happened to them. you know what I mean? like they're too scared to take that step or that leap or whatever it is and then their boss almost like lets the rain go and says on your way and they see the negative and yeah, even for me, like I remember when I was younger, I worked at a company and I wanted to travel overseas for like three, four, five months. And then my, my current boss at the time said, no, you're not allowed to. And then the option was either like quit, I guess, or go overseas. And then I was like, if I don't quit, I'm just going to think about this for the rest of my life. So I just quit. Like I was just like that week, I was like, all right, I'm just going to quit. Like no, no thought process, nothing. Just I'm quitting. And that was like, I think one of the best decisions I've made. Like I learned a lot going overseas, mm. met a lot of new friends and yeah. So I, I think sometimes like, I wouldn't call that getting fired, but I think it was, I was given an ultimatum, I guess. So how long for you from uh, peak to trough or trough to peak when you were kind of at your lowest point or most uncertain point in the process of quitting until you, you got back to like, oh, wow, that was a great thing that happened to me. Cause that, that's, that um, timing is, is rough. Yeah, no, it was so. Look, I, I, I did have a little bit of savings in the bank. Uh, so I, was, I wasn't scared about the money side. I, when I came back to Australia after traveling, I was a little bit nervous, but I got a job pretty quickly. And yeah, I just, it just showed me that like, sometimes people stress about things that they think is going like, to affect them for the rest of their lives. And things change pretty quickly for the good. So as long as you're like, I'm really about like positive karma. So like if I mm. keep doing good, if I, whatever it is, like, it, things are going to happen. So, and I feel like a lot of people, like they, they put a burden on themselves to like make good things happen. 
But if you just keep grinding, keep doing things, it's, it's just going to work its way through. And I would say like within like a month of coming back to Australia after that, that long stint overseas, things were awesome. I got married. I got, huh. I got, well, I got engaged, sorry, uh, to, my, to my now wife. And like, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I would say that all that stress I had before was like not even worth stressing about. So fun. And how, how many, it was just like three months, five months, six months until you were back to at least where you were professionally speaking? I would, yeah, look, it was a bit of a, I would probably say three months, three months three before, months. like, I, I, yeah, I'd, it wasn't that long. It wasn't that long. See, that- that's so interesting. Like if I reflect back on my own experience of being fired, like it was probably, it was, I mean, it was a couple of weeks, maybe three months where it was like eight, eight and a half, 10 years of just grinding and stress and effort. And then and then an abrupt end. And then like mentally, emotionally, physically, probably a couple of months, but the, the anxiety leading up to it, if you were to ask me, Hey, Charles, if you get fired today, how long is it going to take you to recover? I probably would have said years. And so, but, I, but I, I've asked a lot of people that question. And it's always kind of a similar, a couple of months, but it just feels so much bigger yeah. before, like the anticipation feels so much bigger than the actual reality of it. Yeah. And I think there was definitely a moment where I became, like, I realized that all the stress that I had leading up to it wasn't worth stressing about. Mm-hmm. And was there anything practical that you did to, like, how did you, what was that? How did you realize that? That's great secret yeah so i think it was just more about like previously before i did that everything was like somewhat structured in my life everything was just like do it like this do it like this these are the rules uh this is the money you have to pay for this car and like just everything was just there go to work answer this boss make these calls like just everything was like a structure and then when i went overseas like there was a lot of structure at the start because i was like i need to be at this airport at this time i need to do this and that and this and everything was perfect and then it was probably after like a few months as well maybe two months i just wanted to like let go and just like try and just all right if someone says they want to go to berlin i'm just going to go to berlin like and just try and like be more free and more relaxed and i feel like when you do that you learn a lot more about yourself and and others mm. so I, I feel like that was a huge thing for me i mean if anything we can all agree over the last 18 months nobody predicted uh, at least no one that i know predicted covid and if anything we can all agree and um, that we know how fast things change uh when they need to change and it's it kind of goes back to that what i was why it'd be so fascinating for me to talk to sit down and talk with Jesus and like, well, hold on. Like what did you, did you know or anticipate or see that the way that the message was being crafted and shaped was going to disseminate that fast, like around yeah. the world? It's like, like, did, like, did we know, like, is there things we could have done to anticipate how fast the spread of, of COVID was going to happen? Like, are, are there, were there structural things that we could have put in place to facilitate or block I'm sure the answer to all those questions are yes, but I just think about that a lot of like, man, this- We could have got back two years of our lives maybe of uh, other- Right. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a deep question, that one. There's probably a lot of political answers. You started it. You're the one that brought up all these. <laughs> I hate to ask the question. This is your fault. Oh, that's funny. All right. Well, look, let's jump into some stuff around Arrow. I'll be interested okay. to ask some questions. Otherwise, we're going to be talking about philosophical stuff for the next I know, 20 minutes. I know. I know. Putting people to sleep. All right. So I saw on your website that your platform has a, a group chat feature, which I haven't seen in, in yes. many platforms. So- What's the purpose of this and how does this fit into like a business sales process? Oh, so, so simple. The purpose of Arrow is to close deals. Our customer is the salesperson and your customer's customer. So the salesperson, the salesperson's customer, that that's what Arrow is built for. Everything else is secondary. And so as we were building Arrow, we were asking people like, 
walk us through your day, walk us through your sales process, walk us through the experience of taking your machine and getting it to the customer, taking it back from the customer. Like walk me through your entire journey. We'll ask that question again and again and again. A recurring theme was everyone texts. It wasn't a single person. Uh, that's not true. It was one person, this little lady I saw walk out of a store in, in Minnesota and I walked up to her um, <laughs> and I asked her, uh, do you have a smartphone? Uh, and she goes, no, I have, a, I have a flip phone. First, she was kind of put off that I asked that I interrupted her day. But after we got past that, I said, do you have a smartphone? She goes, no, I have a flip phone. She pulled out her phone. I said, do you text? She goes, oh, no, honey, that's not for me. Like, ah, you're the first person that's ever told me you don't text. So other than that one little old lady, um, everyone I've ever asked texts and they know how to text pictures and that's their preferred form of communication. If you look at the math, meaning how often do you call? How often do you email? How often do you text or message? Maybe that's a better way to put it. And so when we looked at all of those factors and we said, well, the goal of Arrow is to make it really, really smooth and easy to close a deal for your salesperson and for your salesperson's customer, and the most frequent method of communication is messaging, then messaging has to be a core component to Arrow. Did yeah. that answer your question? Yeah. No, it makes complete sense. It's it's trying to take, I think we said this in the other podcast, take the day-to-day things that you do and you're used to and apply them to the, the operations of, of Arrow. Yes. Well, why, like we use really great technology in every aspect of our life, and then we show up at work and we're okay with crappy technology. Yeah. Why are we okay with it? Because we don't have a, a better option. But to go back to your texting question, what we observed was they were they were texting groups, they were texting one-on-one, they were texting links to stuff, links to applications, links to things, links to listings of equipment. They were texting um, individually with the customer. They were texting with whoever's handling the logistics of picking up and dropping off and delivery. So there were all these text messages happening. Sometimes there was a text that say, Hey, go check my email. So all these text messages mm. are happening. Like if we could wrap a text message experience around a machine, then that brings this communication purpose back to a machine. Yeah. The same way that when we're texting about going to our kids recital, we have a purpose for this text message group. I just got invited to a text message group for a kid's soccer, like soccer moms. I could just say, Hey, this is because there was rain. So once a year rain in LA, so everybody panicked. And so now we have a text group because of that. So next time there's rain next year, we'll be able to easily coordinate and determine if we're going to cancel practice or not. True story. I'm making that that's up. So, that's so funny. So then on the flip side, we've also got a lot of paperwork that often flows around uh, businesses. So when you talk about a sales rep's role specifically, there's a lot of work they do around contracting and invoicing and purchase orders and stuff like that. How does Arrow streamline that paperwork? So we work backwards from how their customer wants to receive that paperwork. There's critical information in that paperwork. In some way today in the journey of buying and selling and renting equipment, it is already digital. Usually what happens in today's world is it starts digital, it's printed off, it's executed on, it's signed, it's handed, it's sent something, and then it's made digital again through a scanning experience. And so when we study that experience again and again, like, well, this doesn't, uh, this is more painful than it has to be. If the information is already starting digital, let's just figure out what are those key components of things that need to be digital. I'll give you an example that we learned um, from financing. This is 2012. In 2012, um, we were the first ones to really promote electronic signatures for financing. And when we were trying to convince a bank to be comfortable buying our our loans that we were originating funding and needing to sell off, um, we had this came up and the lawyer said, well, those are electronic signatures. Those aren't secure. We don't know who the identity is 
of, of the individuals who signed it. It could have been anybody. And so we put together a legal brief. It was 11 pages, a legal brief where we basically documented why an electronic signature actually did a better job of verifying the identity than a picture of a driver's license being held next to a physical signature. And so it's just one example, like the information that we currently are taking digital, moving physical, and then taking back digital again, usually only has two to three things that really matter. Mm. And so if you figure out what those two to three things are, maybe give you a more practical example of payments, like what really matters, probably payment, probably making sure you have the appropriate insurance and probably making sure the logistics are solved. Meaning when's it going to be delivered? When's it going to be picked up? Because timing is so important. And so inside of that, there's a lot of paperwork, but unless the paperwork really helps one of those, and there's a lot more we could really spend time thinking about it, we can unpack, but there's a lot more around paperwork should facilitate the transaction and de-risk. That's what it's doing. But you can de-risk with other methodologies today. Just like in 2012, we said, we can prove someone's identity by looking at their IP address, their physical address, and also their physical signature because they can sign electronically on an iPad or with their mouse and it's gonna be the same pattern. Or we can verify their ID by scanning it through the DMV system to figure out the Department of Motor Vehicles to figure out are they who they say they are by asking what street you grew up on. Mm -hmm. You applied for a loan application to get a mortgage financing in what year? And so we can ask them questions that only they can know that when they fail, we get an alert. So it's a long answer to your question of saying that the trick is isolate the things that matter most and don't take something that's digital, make it physical to make it digital again. Keep it digital all the time. Yeah. And I think it's important to like, make sure that you've got people in the organization that want that change. Cause you're always going to have people that say, no, 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 no. To get insurance is always going to be a manual process or or whatever the scenario is. So you got to try and have leaders that are embracing change and pushing down that change and that, that change in mindset. I have not met a single person in our industry that has been um, resistant to the change. Zero people. And, and the easiest test and reason why Arrow feels like playing on Facebook uh, is because they prefer texting. Like, <laughs> we're already, we are already using technology to make our lives better. We don't prefer a paper-based experience. We don't prefer to have files on our desk, but it's just like, it's that gap from where I am now to where I know I need to be. It's like, I know I need to go to the gym and lose lose 20 pounds. I don't need you to tell me that. Like I need you to take me by the hand and very safely help me do it without making me hurt too bad. Yeah. No, it's a great example. So, so then look, I want to ask a question, which I think would be quite an interesting one to sort of break down as well. So to break it down simply, what is a marketing campaign? And how does a marketing campaign typically fit into a CRM? Awesome question. So if Arrow exists to help salespeople sell more equipment and rent more equipment and help buyers and your customers transact, if, if our core purpose is to make it easier to move equipment from point A to point B and then move it back from point B to point A, if that's all that we're doing, implied in that are questions that come up on every single transaction. Is everything going Okay. Do you need any service? Do you need any parts? When are you done using the equipment? All of these questions, like every single deal is going to have 10 questions that always come up. And so when I think about marketing campaign, I think about, can we automate those questions? Can we automatically say this equipment has been on rent for 30 days? We're going to instantly send a check-in email. We're going to instantly send a check-in text message. And all it is, is automating the communication that's already happening because we get so busy. We as salespeople get so busy, we forget. Like There's so many stories where um, someone's not paying their invoice, not because they have their ill-willed, 
but because someone forgot to send it to them. That happens all the time, right? Or you forgot to run a credit card or something like that. And so mar- mm. for, for us, marketing manager, marketing automation, all that just comes down to um, automation of the experience of moving equipment back and forth. But it's more narrowly focused on the communication part of it. Another way to say this, you can, you can automate and schedule emails. You can automate and schedule posts online. If you know you're going to be running a special at year end, you can schedule it ahead of time so you can start the conversation in a more repeatable way instead of relying on your top salesperson that's been doing it in a certain way to remember to do it in that same way again. Yeah. I want to touch on something you said there. So I remember I was listening to a podcast and it was a sales podcast. So the, the guy was talking about uh, sometimes like for certain deals, there could be seven, eight, nine, ten touch points before the person buys. Could be even more if it's an enterprise deal. And he was saying that's someone that wants to buy. Imagine someone that doesn't want to buy. And so he was saying the the one thing that he would teach young sales reps to always think about is follow-up, always Mm -hmm. follow-up. People want to buy, but they're busy. They're doing other things in their lives. They're not just sitting there thinking, I can't wait to buy Arrow. Like someday Charles Charles is going to call me. When he calls, I'm just going to buy. But like they're busy running their business. They're not running their business to implement software or whatever the tool is that they're doing. So it's important, like that, that's something that I think really resonated with me a lot. But I ask our sales team all the time, do they believe in our product? And this is a graphic illustration, but I ask them this question. Like, hey, if I'm standing on the freeway and you know, if I don't move, I'm going to get hit by a car. Are you going to convince me to get off the freeway? And the answer is going to be absolutely yes. Well, and not to take that same illustration to using arrow, because arrow is not that important. It's not like you're going to get hit by a bus if you don't use arrow. But my point is that if you truly believe in the product, then it's not selling, it's helping. Like you're, you're helping people get to the gym. You're, you're taking them by the help of by the hand and helping them get over that fear curve of, I know using my smartphone is easy. I just don't know how to do it at work, but I need someone to push me how to do it because I'm a human being and I fall into my patterns because what I've been doing has been successful for decades. It's not like it hasn't worked, it's worked. But I also recognize that things change and things move quickly. So I, 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 it resonates with me a lot, what you're saying. It's just, how do you, instead of sell, like, how do you make it easy to help people get to the next step? Yeah. And I think it comes with advice. having confidence in your, yeah. Yeah. You have to have, you have to believe in your product that makes you trustworthy. If you don't believe in your product, it's going to come through. Mm, definitely. And then from Arrow, like you, you mentioned before the podcast, there's about 70 people within the organization now, which is a big company and it's a lot of people to manage. And the, the world has changed a lot in the last couple of years where remote work has become the norm really. Mm-hmm. And, and I think culture is something that's hard to, to distinguish when you, you haven't seen someone before and you work with them. So can you talk me through from, from a organization standpoint, what it's like managing people that work from home and the culture side of it? Oh, such a good question. I believe that culture is more important than product or strategy. Um, no, no question about that. And it's harder to create and manage and protect. So the way that we think about culture, especially in a remote, remote company, we didn't mean to create a remote business. It kind of happened organically because we launched during COVID and we just kept pulling the thread of, we kept finding high quality people and they happen to be remote. And now we think it is somewhat of a competitive advantage, but we haven't, uh, I'd say we haven't cracked the code yet on how do you truly build culture well in a remote way. So I don't, this is, I don't necessarily love my own answer, but we created a document called the people of arrow. And during the interview process, 
um, the first thing we we do is we make sure people have read the people of arrow and it's posted online i'm happy to, to send it over to um because we have for all of our job applicants and we ask people like does that resonate with you because we cannot know if you're a good fit for arrow better than you know if you're a good fit for arrow and so we ask people to opt in and so that's probably the first step is we define who we are and then we ask people like do you opt in and it was really interesting we did our um our second in-person event um in a few months ago in arizona where we all met in person and i was blown away with how well the team got along i've been thinking about that a lot it's like, like how do people fit so well we haven't really it was kind of like online dating in a way, because we hadn't, a lot of us hadn't ever met in person. And then all of a sudden we're just in person and uh, the the sound of the bar was pretty loud. And I think the reason why is because we all opted into a belief system of how we view the world, like not necessarily right or wrong, but at least aligned with how we view the world. And so um, Logan and I created the People of Arrow document before we started, we created it for ourselves, frankly. We said, this is a company that we want to be a part of. And that kind of set the tone of like, well, let's just make sure the next person agrees with us. And then that kept happening. It were in the happening, happening. In the past, what we've tried to do is get everyone in a room and say, what do you believe in? What do you believe in? What do you believe in? And then we end up with the lowest common denominator of values that are kind of half agreed to, half not. And then it comes, becomes very hard to manage that. So I don't know, it's a long answer, but the short answer would be uh, we give everyone every opportunity to opt in to how we view the world from a culture perspective. Yeah. Sounds That's like amazing. Cult. It's not a cult. <laughs> it sounds like a cult. It's not a <laughs> it disclaimer. It's not a cult. <laughs> this is it's not a cult. I do think our people enjoy working here. I also believe that we're not a cult. So on the record. That's so funny. <laughs> oh, awesome. no, this is exactly what a cult leader would probably say. Right? <laughs> oh no. Come come meet us in Arizona. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's every everyone. No, it's it's we should let that one slide. That's so funny. All right. Well Charles, thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the time. Really, really fun talking to you. This podcast episode was brought to you by our premier partner, Kenart Sire.